Thanks, Edmund. Well, good evening. Welcome to Uni Church. Uh, my name's Rowan. Great to see you here as we keep looking through God's Word. Uh, we've been looking through this book of 1 Corinthians for a couple of weeks and really looking at what it is to live the Spirit-filled life. Uh, so tonight, I think it's great to slow down and look at this passage that really has been phenomenally controversial. It's caused lots of disagreements between people, lots of fights, lots of feelings. There'll be people tonight that will kind of be thinking, well, what does this mean? What does that mean? So after tonight's talk, we're going to have questions. Uh, we'll have question time. So there'll be a number on the screen. Might even be there now. Look at that. You can text that number and ask questions about this. Um, I may not answer all of them tonight. We're coming back next week to look at the second half of the passage. Uh, but ask your questions away and we can go from there. Well, why don't we pray? God would help us and understand His Word and to come to His Word tonight, uh, not with our own preconceived ideas of what things are or aren't, but to sit under what the text says and then come away shaped by what God is saying through Paul to us. Let's pray. Father, thanks that we've been able to come together tonight. Uh, thanks for the joy of hearing your word and having you speak, that you've not left us in the dark. We pray tonight that you would help us to gra- uh, wrestle and grasp, wrestle with the text and grasp what you are saying to us. We pray, pray you give us clarity to understand what you are saying and you help us to hear the clear message you have for us this evening. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Uh, tonight we're doing something a little bit different with the Bible verses. We're only putting the ones up on the screen uh, that are outside of our passage. So you'll need a Bible. So if you don't have a Bible and you thought, oh, I can just wing it with the stuff on the screen, you'll need it. Because I want us to look at the text and keep going through with our fingers as well. Uh, so just raise your hand if, if, you still, if you want a Bible again. Someone will bring it to you uh, if we have one. Yeah, yep, they're moving. This is great. I want to begin by asking this question. You can keep your hands up. So then, you know, I'll come around. Yep, great. I'm not going to do anything weird and make you, you know. Uh, I want to ask this question. Why are you here? Why are you here? Now, I don't mean kind of the existential question, the question of life. Why do I exist? I wasn't kind of meaning that. I don't mean like, how did you get on earth? Like I know mum and a dad... Two people, I know what happens, you know that, we don't have to explain that. What I mean is, why are you here? Like, why why have you come to church tonight? Why do we gather as God's people? Why do people come together like this? So many reasons come to mind, you know, we like the community. Um, We love to be able to chat with friends. We want to maybe check out Christianity and see what these people are talking about. We want to be fed with the Word of God. Maybe for some of us, we've been to university all week and five days wasn't enough. We want more. We want to come back and we're like, this is so great. I just want to sit in the lecture theater and like soak it up. I don't know what it is. Why are you here? I actually want you to take a moment and at the top of your outline, write your answer. Why are you here tonight? Why did you come to church? Give me a second to do that. week. Um, you guys might want to start a sermon timer so I just don't go all night, which is highly likely on this passage. Awesome. 
Okay, so now you've got that written down. I want to put to you what I think this passage is saying, the reason that we gather together is. I want to put it to you today, the reason that we come to church is to experience true spirituality. To experience true spirituality. That's why we come together. Now, for a long time, I've kind of shied away from those words. I had shied away from those words. Experience and spirituality. Um, you kind of think experience, people can just come along and go, well, I'd like to think of God like this, and that's been my experience. And you're like, ah, it's not really what we kind of want to do. We want to hear what God thinks, not what you think of God. And spirituality, like what is spirituality? Some ideas of kind of new age thinking or ideas of who, who knows what the spiritual realm is. In fact, it was those two concepts, experience and spirituality, that actually drew Sarah and I, my wife Sarah and I, to know one another. Um, we, we, we began to get to know one another discussing spiritual experience and its role in the Christian life. It was these passages that drew Sarah and I together. Oh, right? Uh, we, were, um, we were at the same school together. Uh, we went to the same school. We were in the same year in many of the same classes. We were high school sweethearts, right? You're like, oh, these guys. But we actually started out hating one another. Like when I, when I came to the school, Sarah had already been there for a while. Um, I came in year seven and she'd come in like at the, the early, earliest, so year zero, new entrance. I went all the way through. And there was kind of some, some, some things that were quite different about us. She was kind of lots of the things that I wasn't. So Sarah rarely got in trouble. I often got in trouble at school. Uh, uh, Sarah had been there a long time and had kind of set friendships. I came in knowing one other guy in the whole school when I moved to the school. And Sarah's dad was a teacher and so a teacher at the school. And so that didn't kind of play very well for the kid that got in trouble lots. And she was like, you know, one of those teacher's daughters. They always say the right thing and do the right thing. And they hang out in the staff room and all the teachers know them. And you're like, whatever, stuck up snobs, you know. And you kind of, you feel that way. And she'd go home and she'd kind of get help from her dad. I'm like, that's cool. We all get help from our dad. I got help from my dad. She got help from hers. But her dad kind of gave her past exam papers which one time ended up being the actual exam paper that we got in the exam. Like, that's not fair. Like, now, that was the other teacher's fault for not being creative enough to write a new exam paper and just picking a past one. It happened to be the same one that her dad picked. But our church backgrounds... I oh know. Sarah's like, see, it pays to be diligent. I'm like, whatever. <laughs> but our church backgrounds were quite different as well. We went to a Christian school and there were people there from all sorts of different backgrounds. Uh, from non-Christian backgrounds, atheistic backgrounds, Buddhist backgrounds. There were people there from Pentecostal churches and, and Reformed churches and kind of all sorts of different Baptist churches. Um, and for Sarah and I, we'd come from different backgrounds. She'd grown up in a Pentecostal church, the type of church where people were actually happy and excited about Jesus, right? <laughs> actually happy to say, Jesus is awesome. Have you seen him? And, you know, that, that was different. They believed in spiritual experiences, and so sometimes the words that would be going backwards and forwards of people from her church or other Pentecostal churches had been like, oh, this thing happened at church. Someone got thrown against a wall by a demon and then we prayed and they exercised the demon. And you're like, really? What, what is this place? And then other times like, we've got this power now. We speak in tongues and we fall over and we laugh and there's all sorts of things going on. And for me, I'd grown up in a kind of conservative kind of Anglican church, which for us prided ourselves on teaching the Bible. Our tendency was to kind of know about God and to know His Word well. But if we had any issues, it was that we kind of didn't apply it to the way that we lived. We knew about Him, but didn't necessarily apply that in some ways. And that's 
kind of the tendency we often have. But it was as I got talking to Sarah that it kind of blew my brain about what God is saying about experiencing spirituality. I'd come along and said, all of that stuff, that charismatic stuff, that, one, that stuff in 1 Corinthians 12, 13 and 14, except for the love bit, that's great. All of that, right? It's just kind of this whole heap of mumbo jumbo that you guys are kind of putting on. How do you really know what it is? And it quite challenged me to think through, am I experiencing true spirituality? The thing that blew me away about Sarah when I met her, and it's going to sound a bit rude to some of you, but I'd met the first Pentecostal person that actually knew their Bible. For me, that was the reality. And there were lots of people around that were saying this and that that didn't actually kind of ground it anywhere, but Sarah did. She kind of seemed different. And I was like, whoa, I still didn't like her. <laughs> well, that wasn't it. That, that took like a year and a half. I'm a slow learner, all right? But, but it was as we kind of looked at these issues and talked backwards and forwards and, and saw that she actually took God's word seriously. And it pushed me to think through what is the experience of true spirituality. I want to ask you, do you experience true spirituality? Because I want to put it to you, that is why we come to church, to experience true spirituality. Well, the church in Corinth, as Jerry so helpfully highlighted, had a whole heap of issues. <laughs> and they're just like us. Broken people need help focus on the wrong things, and they were all about experiencing spirituality. That's what they kind of lived for. But their type of spirituality wasn't true spirituality. Paul calls them at the start of 1 Corinthians, he says they're the gifted church. They have every spiritual gift. If you want to find the, the gifted church who has it all, all the spiritual ones, the great ones, the powerful ones, that throw demons against walls and kind of visions at night, church, this was it. These guys, they had it all. They had a love for the supernatural and the miraculous, and that's what made them go, yeah, God's really here. From a modern perspective, you might see some similarities with some churches you've been in or come from or might still be in. That, that, that they associate uh, all sorts of flash and pop and bubble and amazing with the spiritual and the supernatural. But, but despite being the spiritual church, sorry, the, the, sorry, despite being the gifted church, Paul can't call them spiritual. Look at 1 Corinthians 3 verse 1. It'll be on the screen. Brothers, I was not able to speak to you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as babies in Christ. Right? Burn. How would it feel? So Paul's writing to you, by the way, you spiritually gifted church, you get your church with all these gifts, you're infants. Your babies. You, you, I can't even address you as spiritual people. What Paul was showing was that true spirituality was not about supernatural gifts and euphoric experiences and ecstatic utterances. It was about confessing Jesus as Lord. The truly spiritual person obeyed Jesus. Look at uh, chapter 12, verse 1 and 3. Now concerning what comes from the Spirit, brothers, I don't want you to be unaware. No one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is cursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. A, a true experience of the spiritual, we've got to get this in our head. We, we, said, we saw this a couple of weeks ago. But a true experience of the spiritual has at its heart the reality that Jesus Christ is Lord. It puts Jesus as King. It serves Him. He is the one who is calling the shots. He's the ruler of your life. If you want to experience a spiritual life, Jesus must be at the center. But what does that look like as a church? What does it look like to be a truly 
spiritual church. Well, Paul starts chapter 14, summarizing chapter 13 and giving more clarity as he moves forward and applying it to this church in Corinth. Chapter 14, verse 1, look in your Bibles. Pursue love and desire spiritual gifts and above all that you may prophesy. Pursue love, desire spiritual gifts and above all that you may prophesy. That seems to be the focus here. Uh, when the gospel first came uh, on the scene to the early church, Christians put the goldsmiths and the silversmiths out of business. See, though the goldsmiths and the silversmiths and the coppersmiths all, and all the other smiths, right? They, they were there making kind of idols and icons and statues for people to worship. And that kind of defined what, what different religions were like and who they worshipped and which idols they had in their house. And because... The Christians stopped making idols, which is rebellious anyway, and icons. They started, they converted, and, and, and the Gentiles became Christian. They worshipped Jesus, not these kind of symbols and signs and fake gods anymore. So the authentic sign of Christianity, it wasn't kind of a symbol. You know, it's not like the symbol of a dove. That the idea of the Holy Spirit is the symbol of Christianity, and that's what marked them out as the first church. It wasn't kind of even a symbol of the cross or a crucifix. That wasn't what marked them out as Christian. What marked them out as authentically Christian, what made someone truly a Christian, was their love for one another. That's what marked them out as Christians. So Paul says this, as he summarizes the whole of the last chapter, he says this, pursue love. That's the sign. That's what makes us look different to the world around us is the way that we love. There's no badge that you can wear that says, I'm a Christian. You can probably get one. It's not the sign or the symbol. We shouldn't kind of go towards that. The Bible doesn't say that. Wearing a cross, I'm sorry to say, it's not like, it might help you a little bit, but I don't, it's not the symbol the Bible gives us. It says, don't, don't mark yourself out by the cross you wear or the fish sticker. Have you seen those? Little fish sticker you can whack on the back of your car. Like, yeah, I'm a Christian now. You know, like, I'm... I'm Telling the world, no, 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 no. Show you are a Christian by pursuing love. Let that be the thing that marks you out. The word here that he uses for pursue is the same word that you'd use to kind of hunt, to chase down a rabbit. Not, not a pet rabbit, a rabbit that you're going to eat, right? Uh, it's to, to chase after, to pursue, to run for. So he says, Pursue, chase after, hunt down love. Make that the thing that marks you out. Now, this hunt for love isn't looking for a lover, right? It's not saying pursue a boyfriend or a girlfriend and you'll be sweet. No, it's saying pursue love for one another in the way that we love each other as a church. And we're going to see what that looks like a little bit later in this, in this talk. And it's not something that you do once, like you catch it as a trophy. I pursued love and I caught it. I've got it now and I can go on with the rest of my life. It's something that you do 24-7. Something that marks the church out. A truly spiritual church. The truly spiritual experience has at its heart the pursuit of love. question for us is, are we pursuing love? Are you pursuing love? Are you relentless in pursuing love for others? Is that why you come to church? To love others. 
And it's not just loving others for love's sake. It's because Jesus is your king. He is the Christ. He is the Lord. And you want others to know him and to remain in him. So Paul says, pursue a love. Pursue love. Secondly, and desire spiritual gifts. That's what our Bibles say. And here I just want to kind of help a little bit. The word gifts isn't there. Again, our translators have put it in. It's just spiritual things. So if you, if, you know, if, if you want to, if it's your Bible, feel free to cross out gifts. It's not there. Uh, it's actually saying desire spirituals, spiritual things, um, spirituality, true spirituality. It's that idea. Pursue love and desire to live in a spiritual way. And the command isn't to go and, and seek out some gifts. That's not what spiritual looks like. In fact, Paul has kind of just said the gifts aren't all ranked beforehand. He's kind of gone through and said that each part of the body needs the other part. He's saying to pursue living in a spiritual way. When we add the word gifts in, we we fall back into the Corinthian era, thinking it's about the giftedness of someone rather than using what God has given us to love others, to point to Jesus. So pursue love, desire spiritual things. Then what Paul does is he hones in in one particular area, especially or above all, that you may prophesy. Now, all of us go, ooh, what's that? Right? I mean, he's saying here there's an emphasis that, that this idea of prophecy has an importance here, that he says this is, this is the thing to, to chase after. Now, I don't think this is an overall ranking of all the gifts in the Bible, where he comes through and says, prophecy, it's the number one gift. That, that's it. Because if you do that and you're pursuing prophecy and that's the main thing and you don't think through sharing the gospel and evangelism, you don't have teachers you're not going to have the Word of God. People aren't going to grow. He's not just kind of going, this is the one that everyone needs to chase after because he'd just be changing their problem. He'd be shifting it from the church that was excited about tongues to the church that really needs to focus on this thing called prophecy and that had the same issue. I think what he's doing is he's coming to this particular church and showing how there are ways that they aren't thinking spiritually about these gifts that they have. And so he sets up a fight. It's tongues v. prophecy. That's what's on. And he has in, in blue corner... Uh, prophecy and in the red corner tongues and what he's going to do is to show the differences and compare and contrast them how they work and tonight i'm not really going to show in detail uh, what prophecy is we'll come back to that next week uh, we'll do a short little bit on that we'll look in a little bit more detail about what tongues is but we're going to come out of this whole passage looking at these two areas with some key principles uh, now one of the key things to remember when we come to the bible is we come to the bible with our own ideas with our own questions. We come along and be like, I want to know what prophecy is. I want to know what uh, words of knowledge are. We don't get them. We don't get that kind of described. Paul didn't leave the appendix and had the kind of job descriptions of each of these out. Why? Well, I take it because he's actually making a point that is different. It's not about what those gifts are. Obviously, he knew, the Corinthian church knew, there was no need to explain that. But the thing that wanted to be passed on was the principle behind it. That's my hope tonight, that as we come in with our own ideas, we don't just put our grid on and go, well, I'm coming here to find out whether tongues is okay and prophecy is not, or how prophecy works. We actually want God's Word to shape and mould us. And if God's Word is somehow unclear in some areas, we're like, oh, I'm not quite sure what this is, we shouldn't make it clearer. Not on its own. We shouldn't just add in detail. We've got to be careful with that. I've got to be careful with that. It's kind of like if you take an image and it's really low quality, Right? You can't just come along and go, oh, can you just up the resolution of that? You're like, no, you can't add in pixels. 
Like it just is like that. That's the number of pixels on it. We can't make more detail. We can't just go, we can double them up and you can make things there, but we're making it up. So when we come along and God's word isn't certainly clear in some areas, we can't just add in pixels. We've got to try and work out what it's saying. Now we might look at other pictures that God gives us in the Bible, other verses, and let scripture interpret scripture. Sometimes we can overlay another image and suddenly get more, more, more quality. Ah, this fills in this little bit here that was grey there. And as we understand more of Scripture, we do that. But we must not come and make Scripture clearer than it is. Be cautious of that. I want to be cautious of that. So, tongues v. prophecy. Let's start right here and see what it is that Paul is pointing us to. The aim isn't to show which one's better. It's not the main aim but it's to clearly explain how we use our gifts in a spiritual way. What we get here, remember, are the principles. So, let's have a look in the red corner, tongues. What is this idea of tongues or languages? Uh, That's the same word, by the way, tongues, languages. It means the same thing. Sometimes it's talking about languages that people spoke. Other times it's speaking about some gift. In Acts 2, actually, let's have a look at it. Acts 2, chapter 1, it's on the screen. When the day of Pentecost had arrived... They were all together, the disciples, in one place. Suddenly a sound like that of a violent rushing wind came from heaven and it filled the whole house where they were staying. And tongues like flames of fire that were divided appeared to them and rested on each one of them. Then they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in different languages or tongues as the Spirit gave them the ability for speech. So this moment, it's the first moment that God's Spirit has come on His people. Jesus promised that I would leave and the Comforter would come. The Spirit would come and explain to you the truths and see the Gospel go out. And this is the moment that that, that God's Spirit comes on people. This is the first Christians right here, right now. This is where it happened. They became followers of Christ in a true way with the Spirit in them. Verse 5. There were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. When this, sound, when this sound occurred, a crowd came together and was confused because each one heard the disciples speaking in his own language. And they were astounded and amazed, saying, Look, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Now, I don't know if that means Galileans were dumb with languages. They can't speak my language. How does this work? But they're from Galilee. They don't speak these languages. How is it that each of us can hear it in our own native language? The first time this gift of tongues is kind of seen here, it's, it's a gift where people are hearing in their own language. It's more like a gift of hearing than a gift of speaking. It's a way of speaking that everyone hears it in their own native language. And that's what's going on here uh, in Acts 2. But as we get to 1 Corinthians 14, I think it's actually quite a different thing that's going on when he speaks of tongues. Now, there's, there's a range of what, what that means. There is a sense in which tongues could be the gift of languages, uh, but in, in 1 Corinthians 14, it seems that there's something else going on about it. So firstly, let me, let me give you a, a number of things here in the table that we can write down to see what, what is tongues about. Acts 14 verse 2, sorry, 1 Corinthians 14 verse 2. The person who speaks in another language, a tongue, is not speaking to men, but to God. The first thing that we learn about tongues in this passage is that it is speaking to God. 
Tongues is speaking to God. Lots of people think it's, oh, here's a message from God. It's like, wow, that person's speaking in tongues. We want them to translate so we know the, the amazing message from God. But Paul says here, tongues is the other way around. It's man speaking to him. It's us to God. It's prayer. Tongues, number one, is speaking to God. Number two, um, tongues is not understood by the speaker or the hearer unless it is interpreted. Tongues is not understood by the speaker or the hearer unless it is interpreted. Look at verse 2 of chapter 14. For the person who speaks in another language is not speaking to men but to God since no one understands him. However, he speaks mysteries in the spirit. He doesn't understand it. The person who's speaking in tongues does not know what's going on unless they have the gift of interpretation and then they do and no one else understands it unless they've got the gift of interpretation. It seems that it's not understood by the speaker or the hearer unless they have the gift of interpretation. As far as I kind of have come together in putting this and I want to be careful that I'm not putting in extra pixels. As I see what this thing here is in 1 Corinthians 14 and 13 and 12, I think tongues is... a kind of free vocalization, a kind of way of praising God where I don't really, I'm not using language, I'm just using sounds and syllables, although though it is able to be interpreted, and we'll see that uh, with the gift of interpretation. It's not revelation from God to me, but it's a prayer from me to God. Some kind of say that it's an angelic language, you may have heard that. Tongue seems to be some sort of angelic language. Where do we get that from? Well, we get it from 1 Corinthians 13, last week. When Paul said, If I speak in the tongues of men or angels but have not love, I'm a resounding gong. We're like, there it is. See? He says that tongues can be the tongues of men or there's the tongues of angels. But the problem is, I don't think Paul is being literal in that section. And I don't think you do either. Let me show you why. Paul, in this point, is trying to show that if you, have the, if you can speak in all the languages of men and, and even the languages of angels, but you have, no, you have not love, you're nothing. Love is the thing that's important. The next thing he moves on to is he says, if I have enough faith to move a mountain but have not love, I'm nothing. Show of hands, who actually thinks Paul is saying you can have enough faith to move, say, uh, a mountain from New Plymouth to Mount Eden. Hand up. Who thinks God is saying it actually is possible? Okay. Everyone else, you have little faith. <laughs> I don't think he's saying that. He's picking up on Jesus, who I think was speaking in hyperbole about, he, this is the picture. You could have faith so much, you could move a mountain. It's the most amount of faith kind of plausible. Jesus references it. I don't think he's saying it can actually move. I don't think that's what he's pointing to. He's saying you have so much faith in that point. He's using hyperbole. He's saying you could speak in all the tongues of men. Heck, you could even speak in the tongues of angels. Angels' tongues. Whatever that is. But if you have no love, you're nothing. So I don't think at this point it's talking about speaking in an angelic language. I think it's some sort of... Uh, words, language, um, some sort of expression toward God that I don't know that the details of what I'm saying unless I have this gift of interpretation, but I'm speaking it to God. One way to think about it is something like this. It's kind of like a jazz doing a jazz vocalist doing scat singing. 
Have you ever seen someone who's doing jazz and they're kind of, they're not singing words, but they're like, what does that mean? One goes E-F-G-F-A-B-E, I don't know. But like, it's kind of an expression of how someone's feeling. You can express things that doesn't really have a language. And perhaps it's, it's something like that. Um, scat singing is described as um, nonsense, nonsense syllables without words that we sing. There's, um, there's a Pink Floyd song that I love. Does anyone actually know of a band called Pink Floyd? Oh, more at uni church. This excites me. Oh, my brothers and sisters, welcome. <laughs> this is great. Okay, there's a Pink Floyd song, and it's called Great Gig in the Sky. Who's heard of that? Oh, disappointing. Basically, the whole track is just a, a lady um, singing scat singing. And you kind of get what she's trying to say, but you, you don't get the detail of that, and you kind of hear some of it. I imagine as I see through this, this is what tongues is here. Different to what happens in Acts 2. Different to the idea that I might be able to speak in different languages and, and to, to others. Or I might be able to have a gift of, of just being able to speak a language that I've not learned before. That might be a, 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 an application as well. But here, it seems to be this thing he's talking about to the Corinthians is something that you don't know, you don't understand, no one else understands. God does. It's a prayer to him. Number three, tongues does not build up or encourage the church. Tongues does not build up or encourage the church. It doesn't. Ever. Verse 6 of chapter 14. But now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in other languages or tongues, how will I benefit you unless I speak to you with a revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? Even inanimate things that produce sounds, whether a flute or a harp, if they don't make distinction in the notes, how will what is played on the flute or harp be recognized? In fact, if the trumpet makes an unclear sound, who will prepare for battle? In the same way, unless you use your tongue for intelligible speech, how will what is spoken be known? For you'll be speaking into the air. Tongues doesn't build up others unless it's interpreted. It's the gift of interpretation that is the thing that is helpful. And we'll see more of that next week. But I think that once tongues is interpreted, it just becomes prophecy. Something like that. It's a word spoken. We don't wait it anymore because it was said in a tongue. It doesn't be like, oh, we've got to suddenly listen to what God has said to us. No, it's us to God, not God to us. And here we come across the principle of intelligibility. The idea of what we do when we gather together to have a truly spiritual experience is we need to understand what's going on. What's being said from the front needs to be intelligible. We must understand it. And that's what Paul makes the point of about tongues doesn't, it's not understandable and so therefore it is not helpful for building up the church. Number four, tongues is not to be banned. Tongues is not to be banned. It's not wrong. It's not sinful. Look at verse 18. I thank God that I speak in other languages or tongues more than all of you. Yet in the church, I would rather speak five words with my understanding in order to teach others also than 10,000 words in another language or tongue. What do we get from this? Paul speaks in tongues. It's not wrong. We must not go, we must ban tongue speaking altogether. You must not do it at all. Paul doesn't do it in the church. In fact, 
his economy says, look, I'd, I'd, I'd rather speak five intelligible words than 10,000 in a tongue. Like it's just, he's saying, <laughs> it's just not for the public gathering. It doesn't build up. It does here, it seems to be used for private use. Paul speaks it at home in some sense. But I don't think he's saying to us here, all right, I want everyone to go away and start desiring this tongue-speaking gift at home. In fact, he's saying the opposite. He's saying tongues isn't helpful for building up the church. It's really only loving you and expressing stuff to God. Unless it's interpreted, tongues on its own, like, don't focus on it. Don't, in fact, focus on things that will build up the church. They're the greater gifts, the ones that are used in love to build up others. So Paul doesn't place it highly at all. Uh, there's a test here, and I think it's helpful. Uh, I've, I've, got, um, I've got a $5 note in my back pocket, right? $5 note. Paul says he'd rather speak five intelligible words than 10,000 in a tongue. And basically what he's doing is he's showing the value of the intelligible words and tongues. So you see, who, who would come right now and swap me my $5 note for 10000 Anyone got $10,000 they want to swap for my $5 note? That's what he's saying, Right? It just stick the, the, the 10,000 here, though it's, it's flipped around. <laughs> 10,000 words in a tongue. It, it's just, I'd rather just speak five intelligible words. It's not to be banned. It's not wrong or sinful, but for private use. Number five, tongues is a sign. It's a sign. Have a look at verse 21. It's a sign we'll see for believers, not unbelievers. And this bit gets real confusing. People come along, we read this, like, what is going on here? I can't work out. There's, uh, this is for unbelievers, and then prophecy is for believers. Uh, hang on, no, tongues is for believers, and then prophecies, I don't really know, right? And you're like, I, I don't get this. I don't understand what's happening. But you've got to understand the context of what's going on here. So look at verse 21. Paul says this, and he's quoting Isaiah 28 when he says it. It's written in the law. I will speak to these people by people of other languages or tongues, and by the lips of foreigners. And even then, they will not listen to me. And Paul gives his commentary. It follows that speaking other languages is intended as a sign, not for believers, but for unbelievers. But prophecy is not for unbelievers, but for believers. Right, clear, right? What's going on? Well, the quote from Isaiah 28 is the context that Israel have rejected God. They've not been listening to God's voice and following Him. And so God is about to bring in the, the Assyrian army, the Assyrian invasion. And God's like, if you're not going to listen to me, I'm going to make you listen to me through the lips of others. In other words, when the Assyrians come in, and the Jews who were there, that they'll hear a foreign language, it'll sound like gibberish. Like, what is this? What it means is they're about to be judged. They're about to be wiped out. God is going to speak judgment in them. See, we live in such a different age than this society here. We live in a multicultural society that we just miss the point. When we hear someone speaking another language, we're like, oh, cool, where are they from? What's that language you're speaking? And we kind of, we love hearing that and, and listening and being like, oh, that's great. They're a tourist checking out New Zealand, you know, looking, looking at the awesome kind of Lord of the Rings scenery, which was here before Lord of the Rings, P.S., you know, and, and, and it's great. In the Old Testament, when you heard someone speaking another language amongst you, you know what it meant? They were a spy and you were about to be killed. They didn't do tourism. 
Like, oh, I'm just going to pop over there and check out what's happening in Egypt. If you went over there and you're an Egyptian and this, this, you're from another nation, they'd kill you. But if, if someone comes along and they're speaking another language, it means you're about to be invaded. You're about to be taken out. You're about to be judged. And that's exactly what was happening here. If the Jews heard another language being spoken amongst them, it wasn't like, oh, tourist. It was like, oh, we're about to be smashed. They're coming to kill us and take us over. Have a listen to Isaiah 28, 12 and 13. This is on the screen. In the past, God said to them, Israel, this is where security can be found. Provide security for the one who is exhausted. This is where rest can be found. God has been loving and shown them rest and security, but they refuse to listen. So the Lord's word to them will sound like meaningless gibberish, senseless babbling, a syllable here, a syllable there. As a result, they will fall on their backsides when they try to walk and be injured, ensnared and captured. Tongues is a sign for unbelievers, for people who aren't taking God at his word, that God is judging them. I'm sending in another nation. A foreign nation is invading you. You need to come back to God. That's the sign. Someone speaking another language amongst you, turn back to God. It doesn't mean, as some people think, that you know, tongues are a sign for unbelievers because when they hear someone speaking in a tongue, they're like, well, that's cool. You know, I'm amazed you're speaking this crazy language and I, I'm, wow, I'm in. That's not what it's saying. It's judgment. It's a sign, but a negative sign. But prophecy, we see, and we'll see more of this next week, is for believers to be encouraged, to be built up, for people to become believers when they hear intelligible words. So let's turn now to the, to the blue corner. We've heard tongues, five points in tongues. Let's have a quick look at prophecy. I'm going to be much quicker here. Uh, we'll come back next week and see how prophecy is applied and a few things to say about tongues as well. Um, but what we see here is Paul holds out prophecy in contrast to tongues. He says prophecy is unlike tongues. Prophecy is what builds the church. It builds up the church. Look at verse 3. The person who prophesies speaks to people, not to go up to people, for edification, encouragement, and consolation. The person who prophesies speaks to people for edification, encouragement, and consolation. We don't really get a definition of what prophecy is. I think there's a wide range, like tongues, there's a wide range of prophecy as well. Uh, of people foretelling what will happen. You get Agabus in Acts 21, um, talking about something that will happen and he prophesies. In the end, Paul doesn't listen to it all. <laughs> he doesn't do exactly that, but it's still called prophecy. In the Old Testament, you had uh, prophets who spoke the word of God. There's, there's a wide range. I'm getting sucked into talking about next week, so I'm going to stop. But here, we see the result of prophecy. When prophecy happens, people are built up. They are edified. They're, they're encouraged about what God has done and is doing. They're, they're consoled. They're comforted. God is coming back. That is the future. He is coming back to judge the living and the dead. If you trust in Jesus, you are in Him. They're built up in Him to put Jesus as Lord. It's a truly spiritual experience. Look at verse 24. If all are prophesying and some unbeliever or uninformed person comes in, he is convicted by all and judged by all. The secrets of his heart will be revealed and as a result, he will fall face down and worship God, proclaiming God is really among you. The result of prophecy is that people worship God. They are convicted of their sin, that we are sinners, that, that we have not treated God rightly. 
the truth is told about us all. They're like far out. And they've come in. You might be here tonight and you're like, well, what is this? God is saying that all of us have rejected him. That we've turned our backs on him. And that calls it sin, falling short for God's perfect standard. And all of us deserve to be judged because of that. That is the future. Man is destined to die once and after that face judgment. And then Jesus, though, has come and taken that penalty for us so that we don't have to face judgment. You want to know your future? Then you turn to Jesus and worship him. Someone says something like that, explaining what God has done, applying it to the people that are there and the unbelievers says, man, I am in. Maybe tonight that's you. Maybe tonight God, in a sense, has just in, in, in some way pricked your heart to say, I want in, I want part of this. But the result of prophecy is that people say, I just heard God. I just saw what God had done. And I've seen what it means to me. God is amongst you. You are people who are following him. Here's my quick working definition of prophecy at the moment. <laughs> prophecy is... It's a bit weird, wasn't it? Uh, <laughs> prophecy is this. Intelligible speech, we can understand it, that builds up, encourages and consoles others. Prophecy is intelligible speech that builds up, encourages, and consoles others. So they might be convicted of their sin, focused on the work of Jesus, placing Him as Lord, and recognizing that God has addressed them. Focused on the work of Jesus, placing Him as Lord, recognizing that God has addressed them. And we'll see next week how prophecy is used within the church as we go through the rest of the chapter. I'm happy to answer some questions on it, but um, we're not going to do much more than that because we see here that prophecy is intelligible. We see here that it builds up. It's understandable and it's a thing that we should seek. Now, in the battle, t- tongues versus prophecy. The, the clear winner is prophecy. Paul's saying that's what you should seek. It was five points to 10,000. It was really clear. But there are some great principles that we get out of this whole passage. And that's where I want to spend the rest of our time. I want to give you five principles from this passage. It might not be what you expect when we come in with our own questions. What is tongues like? What should I be doing with tongues today? But it does answer this question. What does the truly spiritual experience look like? Why do I come to church? Number one, the truly spiritual experience in church is this. We come to church to pursue love. We come to church to pursue love. We, we come like Christians, not consumers. We come in an other person-centered way, looking out for others, talking to others, loving others. The intention of our heart as we come each time is not thinking about what I will get today, but how I can serve others, how I can look out for the person who's standing on their own and care for them, and walk alongside them, and serve them. That's what it is to be truly spiritual, to come to pursue, to be relentless in love. The unspiritual person says, I love to use my gifts. Look at me, I love them. I love my gifts. But the spiritual person says, I use my gifts to love. I use my gifts to love. One, the unspiritual, I love to use my gifts. The spiritual, I use my gifts to love others. Number two, principle number two. Church 
is for building up others. We are to strive to excel in building up the church. That's why we come together. That's what Paul's saying. Here is the greater way, love, using your gifts to build up others. That's the end. What's, what's the best gift? It's not about what the best gift is. It's about using the gifts God's given you to build others up. And if they don't build others up, don't do them. We come to church to build others up. That's what we're about. In, some, in one sense, I think Equippers Church has the best name ever. You go to church to be equipped. To be built up. That's what it means. I don't know what they believe, where they all are. Um, nothing against them. But that is why we are here, is to build one another up. When churches see their identity in their heritage, so the Anglican church, it's like we're British. You know, that's who we are, we're the Anglican church. And we have a British heritage, and you know, or the Tongan church, or a Samoan church, or a Kiwi church. If we find our identity in that we are this church and our identity is tied up in our heritage, we're not thinking biblically. Churches that see their identity in their form of government, you know, they define themselves as Episcopalian. That, that, that word comes from the Greek word episkopos, which means bishop. So they're saying we've got an order of government where we have bishops, priests and deacons. And that's what defines us with the Episcopalian Church or the Presbyterian Church. Presbyterian comes from the word presbyteros, which means elder. So we're a church that is governed by elders. That's how we work. Or an independent church like us. We're independent of other churches but have um, leadership from within. If we define ourselves by that, we're not thinking biblically. Churches that define themselves on a view of baptism or a view of gifts, whether they be charismatic or Pentecostal or cessationist, wherever they are, you know, we're a cessationist church. We don't believe that the gifts are for today. Or we're, we're a Pentecostal church. We think everything's for today. If we define ourselves around that, we're not thinking biblically. We must see ourselves as a group of people who recognize that Jesus is our Lord and therefore we strive to build up one another in love. We are the church that loves and builds one another up. That's why we come. That's what should define us. That is our identity, building one another up. We worship God as we build one another up. It's not about just me and God. I come to church to have an amazing experience of Him. I come to church to build up others and God says, that makes me proud. And the key principle then of building one another up is this, number three. Church must be intelligible. I.e., we must be able to understand what's going on. There's no point in going to a church that you don't understand what they're saying or what is happening in it. And in a sense, that's what tongues had done. It, it, it kind of created a barrier um, for Sarah and I early on in our marriage. She'd grown up in a Pentecostal church. She'd been taught how to speak in tongues and had done that, but wasn't sure if that was really what the Bible was saying today. And there's this sense where I felt like, well, has she got this thing that I don't have? Has she got this special relationship with God? Of course, I mean, a big divide in our prayer life early on. Uh, there's a sense in which when you don't know what's happening, you're left as an outsider. Ever been to some other country or some other place where everyone's speaking another language than you and you just don't get it? You're like, hi. But they're like, what was that? No idea. Church needs to be intelligible so that people can be convicted of their sin, can hear of what is happening with God's judgment, can hear what God is saying and proclaim God is really among you. The languages that we use must be intelligible. Uh, the reformer, William Tyndale, he's responsible for what would become the King James Version of the Bible in English. 
He's the dude that in England went, look, I, I want to make sure people have the, the word of God in their own language. He was prepared to die so that people could read God's word in a way that they understood it. Intelligibility was important for him. In fact, he did die. He died because he translated the Bible into English. And two years later, the king of England came along and said, guess what? Let's make this into the authorized translation and spread it across England. And up went the European Reformation. Intelligibility is important so we can understand what's going on. We can't be built up if we don't understand. That's why tongues must be interpreted if it's to be of any use to the gathering. I fall into the same mistake when I use big words that others don't know. You know, I don't mean biblical words. We're not explain the biblical words uh, that are there and understand what they're about. But, I, you know, using big theological terms. It's probably, I, I hate it. Sorry, but hobby horse. I hate it when people just quote Greek words like, oh, the Greek word here for love is agape, and they move on. I'm like, so what? Thanks for letting me know you know Greek. Wow, you read it in a concordance somewhere, and off you went. Like, how is that helpful to me? You know, now if, if you're explaining what Presbyterian means and where it comes from, that's kind of helpful. But maybe I hate it when we're like, "Oh, this word means that." As somehow, if I know what the Greek word meant, it suddenly pops out. Uh, no, it's still understood within context. It's still understood that way, and it just frustrates me. It kind of puts a barrier. It says, "I have access to knowledge no one else knows about." I'm like, your, your translations in English—they're good, generally, except for when they add gifts in. Why do they do that? I think you've got a little footnote that may say gifts is not here in the original, I think. But do remember this, though, as an aside. Whenever people do use big words, they probably don't get what they mean because they're using words that they don't really, they're not able to understand or explain in simple ways. So we use them because we're lazy and we don't, we don't get it. So we just talk about prelapsarian and prolapsarian and pericardic unity of the Trinity. And we're like, Ooh, this is big words. I could just be going blah, 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 blah. Well, you know, it just puts a barrier there. It's far better off to talk about the ways of each person of the Trinity is equally involved in every action of the Trinity. That's what perichoresis means. And so it's helpful to explain them. That's why we want to make it intelligible. We come along sometimes and we think, oh, they use big words. That was a deep sermon. No, it wasn't. Just because you use big words, if you understood it and got what God was saying, that was a deep sermon. If you don't understand what I'm saying, it's my fault, not yours. Unless you've stayed up all night and you're really tired, then go home and get some sleep next time and snap yourself out of it. That's not my bad, that's yours. You've got to be responsible for listening, right? But if I'm not clear, that's my bad. I need to be able to see it as, un, as, as intelligible. If you don't understand what the prayer is praying up the front, you're like, what did they say? It wasn't helpful. How can you say I'm into it? It needs to be intelligible. That's why when we sing, we want to make sure we sing songs that are clear in their words. So we can understand what, that, what they're meaning, not some vague, poetic kind of mash. It's like, I don't know. Yeah. You want clarity so that we can say yes. That's why in our morning church, we send the kids out. They don't stay in the whole time. They come in for a bit, then they go out so they can learn at an age-appropriate level. So it's intelligible for them. And when they're at an age, they can come back in to the, the general level of the congregation. We say, come back in. Sometimes you have different elements of a service that are in a different language. So sometimes we sing a, a song during the Lord's Supper that might be in a Tongan or a different language to try and express the reality that we come from different backgrounds. And we've all got different um, uh, languages that we've come from or, or histories, but we've brought together in Christ. And it's a great expression of that. But we always have it translated into English so that we can understand that because we are an English church. Uh, we've been thinking through how we help people who have English as a second language. 
one of the things I'm trying to work on is slowing down in the way I speak, because sometimes I speak too quickly and it's hard to understand. Um, And so next year, we're trying to think through how we can provide translations, or at least the English version, so that you can get it if English is your second language, because we want the Word of God to be intelligible. So what I thought we'd do is a quick thing before we get to the final point. I'd love, just as a quick survey, for us to write down two things, just as kind of understanding where we're coming from. Um, One, I'd love you to write down what your ethnic background is. So what country your parents or your grandparents were from, and what country you were from. It would be great to see the different kind of nationalities that we have amongst us that are coming together. Um, So first thing, what's your ethnic background? So where were your parents born and where were you born? So write that down on your little connect card that's there. It would be really helpful. And then the second thing I'd love you to write down is a list of the languages that you speak, starting with the first one. So number one, for me, English. And it stops there. It's just all I've got. Uh, I, I can read some Greek and I can pick out some Hebrew. And I learned French at school, but I can only say all the rude words and know what they are. You know, but that, that was it. But I love just to see the different languages that you speak. What was the first language you spoke? So write down number one, whatever that was. Number two. I just think it'd be great to celebrate next week and kind of report back and say that we've got people speaking from all these different languages that are coming together. I do want to say while you're thinking about that, if you have different languages, you have a great gift. You have tongues, languages you can speak the word of God to others in. And that's a great blessing and privilege. Okay, last point. Last principle that we get from this section. And I've got to say, this one is a little bit pointed. One of the principles we have when we teach the word of God is we want the same tone of the passage to be the tone of the implications or application of the sermon. We want to match what God is saying to us. And so the last principle we get from these kind of list of how Paul is working out these, these spiritual things that are expressed is this. You ready? Grow up. Grow up. If we've become so focused on gifts and not loving others and using the gifts God has given us. We want to know what this is and what that is and exactly how we apply that and what it looks like. Paul says we're acting like babies. We're infants squabbling about things that don't matter. That's what Paul's saying to the Corinthian church. He's saying you are so infantile. When you feel jealous that you've got gifts that others don't have and you want to stop things that others have and you want to be focused on this thing or that thing without thinking about how you love your being, babies, grow up. Are you or I so infantile, so jealous of certain giftings, the way God has built others, and we try and write them off rather than sit under the word of God? Are you or I so focused on certain gifts that we think they're the be-all and end-all? Unless you speak in tongues, you are not a spiritual Christian. Grow up. Paul is saying for those of us who come to church to think about how I will get built up today, to focus on me, he says this, grow up. It's not about you. For those of us who think that that the miraculous is somehow more important, he says grow up. Stop being a baby. Stop focusing on these things that aren't even the focus. Focus on building up one another. For those of us who think that coming to church or a connect group isn't the most important thing in the week, that we can just miss out, and that's all right, because I don't mind missing out. 
I forget that it's not about me, that we're given these gifts to build one another up. We have all sorts of excuses and sometimes, you know, it's hard to get along. There's certain things going on, exams, a hard week. Paul says, this is heaven and hell. God gave you those gifts so that you can turn up. You can love others. Grow up. Stop being so infantile and thinking, oh, I don't really feel like it today. To those of us who come to church and who sing for the Christians here or don't sing and you kind of don't want to proclaim the word of God, don't want to speak God's word in song to one another or don't want to say, amen, I agree at the end of a prayer. Paul's saying, grow up. That's partly what prophecy is, encouraging one another. When is the point that we sing God's word to one another? When we speak it to one another, we speak it outside, we speak it in song. Then you're like, oh, I'm not sure if I've got the best voice. I'm not really into singing. Paul says, grow up. Sing. God, Jesus died for you on the cross. Your brothers and sisters need you to be expressing the truth of who you are and what Jesus has done to one another. It's not about me and God. It's about you singing to to everyone else. But God knows my heart. Yeah, but the person next to you doesn't. And that's why you're here, to build them up. Grow up. Sing. For those of us who come to church and don't think about how we can encourage others, we don't look for the newcomer. We look for our friends and go straight there or afterwards we speak of the trivial things that are happening throughout the week or what things interest us and we don't kind of talk about what God's been saying to us. We don't bring up spiritual things. We just kind of talk about the things of the world. Paul says, grow up. Stop being babies. Stop just going, oh, I'm not here for that. Encourage one another. Build one another up. Stop being a consumer. Start being a Christian. With regard to our thinking, this passage is about us growing up, taking spirituality seriously, not being focused on the gifts, but loving one another and building one another up and recognizing that that is why we are here. It's a strong word. But it's a clear word to us all, no matter which side of the fence we sit on with gifts. Paul says to this church, pursue love relentlessly. Be known as the church that love one another. Desire spiritual things, expressing the gifts God has given you in that right way, especially prophecy, for it builds up the church. Build up one another. That is why we are here. That is why you are here. But today, let's not walk away from hearing God's word and think, oh, what about this gift or that gift? Let's think through how we might be using the gifts God's given each of us to love one another, pursue love, desire spiritual things to see people standing firm in Jesus on that last day. How about I pray? Father, thanks so much for your word tonight. We ask that you would point out the areas that we have not loved others as we ought, where we focus on the wrong things, we focus on gifts, we focus on ourselves and not building others up. Thanks for the clarity of your word tonight. We do pray that you would help us to use the gifts that you give. We wouldn't quibble about what this is or what that is, but we would use it to love one another. We would use everything we have to love one another. We pray we would speak the truth of who Jesus is, that he is our king and we will live for him. 
Lord, we ask that you would keep making us into a truly loving church. We love you and love others and use our gifts for your glory. Amen. Well, a few questions. Who's going all right? I feel like I'm out. Good point. Okay, let's have a look. Number one. Can't guarantee I can answer this well. Can cessationists and continuationists happily be members together of the same church? Is Unichurch cessationist or continuationist? (laughs) It's kind of how you answer that question, isn't it? I I, I, I think there's a couple of things to say. Um, can cessationists and continuationists happily be members together of the same church? I think, yes. A cessationist, what is that? Intelligibility. Uh, people who think that the gifts, the charismatic gifts have stopped. Well, yes, you can be part of a church that says that the, the, some of these gifts, the spiritual gifts have, have stopped and are not for today. Uh, but others think that they are. I don't think that hugely affects how it happens. Uh, if you're expect, depends what you mean by that. If you're expecting tongues to be spoken within the church and that's, that's what a cessationist means, that's not what the Bible means. I kind of want to push back and go, we want to be biblical Christians. I'm going to sit under God's word and really wrestle to work out what that is. The idea of being a cessation, I just feels odd to me that the gifts have somehow stopped. They haven't, God still has gifted us to one another. Paul is not about this gift and that gift and they're all in order. The gifts are for today. They're until Jesus comes back. That's when they end. So the gifts continue. So in that sense, we've got to say we're expecting God to keep working through us when gifts. But if we go, what about this exact gift? Does this church, is this a tongues church? I say, no, we're not a tongues church. And neither is any other Christian church. We're a church that's using the gifts God's given us. Uh, so I, I, the other part of me wants to say, the answer to this question is, we need to grow up. <laughs> we need to not focus on which gift do you use and when. Just use the gifts God's given you to love others. Seek, pray, ask God to grow you and to give you the gifts we need to love and serve one another and do it. Sit around scratching our navels going, well, which one is it? Which one have I got? Just do it. If you're feeling convicted that God is saying to you to speak to someone about their life, then go do it. Don't be like, well, is this God speaking? If it lines up with Scripture, just go do it. Speak. Don't say God told me to. Just just go do it. We just need to get on with loving people. (laughs) Number two. Acts 2 talked about the apostles being filled with the Holy Spirit. Is there a difference between having God's Spirit living in you and being filled with the Spirit? Uh, Great question. Uh, Not from this passage. Ephesians 2, I think, 2, would be a great section to look at to see that and working that out. What he's talking about in Acts 2 is for the first time people becoming Christians. God's Spirit lives in them. They're then able to recognize that Jesus is Lord and serve Him. Um, and so God's Spirit is in us. Is there a difference between God's Spirit living in us and being filled with the Spirit? Well, if what we mean by being filled with the Spirit is what Acts describes as someone uh, is emboldened by the Spirit and they go out and proclaim the gospel, then it, it kind of, yeah, you can be having God's Spirit provoke you or embolden you to go and do things at times. Yes, absolutely, that can happen in an ongoing sense, but it's not like, oh, I'm, I'm at 80% Spirit-filled. You, no, you don't have like a level and don't go around and check people. What are you at? What's the Spirit out in you? It's not like that. Um, it's saying that God lives in us. And by His Word and His Spirit together, He molds and shapes and comforts and encourages us and others as we use the gifts. Um, there's a quick answer. Number three. 
If tongues is between you and God, why is there a reason to speak it aloud or try and put those feelings to words when there's no need to try and put those feelings into words as God already knows how you feel? Great question. Why is there a need for interpreting when it's between you and God? Why involve another party? Party. So for the second part of interpretation, I think come back next week, uh, the quick answer is going to be, and I might, I might change between now and next week. So here's where I think right now. Uh, I think tongues interpreted is just like, it's not special because it's in tongues. Right? It, it's not special in any way. In that it, it, there's an interpretation and we go, okay, then now we weigh it the same way that when someone speaks a prophecy, and we'll see what that is next week, it's weighed by others. We don't just go, oh, God said it. It must be true because someone spoke it in some, some language. Um, so the second part is uh, the need for interpreting when it's between us and God is, well, tongues becomes useful in some ways if there's meaning. He's saying the thing that's unuseful with tongues is that there's no intelligibility. So that's the, first, the, the second part. The first part, if tongues are between us and God, why speak it aloud? Oh, yeah, I'm not sure. It seems to be this thing that God has perhaps given is the modern experience of tongues today uh, the same as what Paul was talking about here. Uh, I was reading a guy, um, I was reading in the commentary that, w- that I think is still out there, we might have some co- called uh, Showing the Spirit from Don Carson. It says in there, it's a great commentary. He says in there, there's this moment where um, he was in a congregation and people were speaking in different tongues and people were interpreting. And this guy, wasn't the Carson, this other guy, knew off by heart the first bit of John 1 uh, in the Greek. And so he just spoke it out loud. And someone said, do you have an interpretation? They said, yes. And it was nothing to do with what the Greek was. I'm like, oh, what's going on there? Uh, there's stories of people who have um, said, yes, I can interpret, and they've recorded it, and then they've got different people who have the gift of interpretation, and they've got different interpretations every time. Uh, and they say, well, God was meaning different things through it at different times. I, I don't, how do we know at that point? Paul says five to 10,000. Don't worry about it. Focus on things that will build others up. Don't, don't, to get caught in there, is this tongues and is it not? It, it's like a, it's, it's, not, it's, not, it's not a thing. He says, use your gifts in love. God's given them to you. Get on with it. Number four, how would you know you have the gift of interpretation if people, speak in, if people don't speak in tongues unless there's an interpreter? Interestingly, in this passage, um, the person who should pray for interpretation is the person who speaks it. Uh, it's not waiting for someone else who's got the interpretation. Uh, Paul's saying you should pray for the gift of interpretation. You should pray you know what you're saying so that your spirit and your mind might be fruitful. Um, and so then, if you don't have the gift of interpretation, perhaps at that point you're saying, don't say it. Now, in the next passage, um, it talks about someone may interpret. And so it could be someone else who has the gift of interpretation. Uh, and so I've seen it done in some churches where someone says, I have a word, I have a word, um, but I don't have an interpretation. Well, I would treat it the same as I treat anyone else who says, I want to say something. I'm like, well, this person's got a word. Can anyone interpret their word? And then... Um, they would go, yep, okay, so let's go and have, tell me the interpretation, then I'll weigh the interpretation and see whether it lines up with what we're doing and what's happening. And you go, okay, there we go. Just because it's in a tongue doesn't make me go, oh, I've got to listen. I don't know where we get that from. Uh, yeah. Uh, now, more questions on that next week, I'm sure. Five. I'm just going to keep going until someone stops me. Uh, if Paul doesn't rate tongues languages very highly, why does he still pray in languages? Verse 15. Why is he thankful for it? Verse 18. Uh, what does it mean that speaking in languages builds the individual up? Verse 4. Great questions. Great questions. Um, the emphasis of the passage is Paul saying we don't need to focus on this. So why does he say he still prays in languages? 
Well, I take it that he's thankful because God has given him this gift. There is a gift called tongues. Um, what it looks like today and whether the modern equivalent of what people are saying is tongues is tongues. I mean, that's why Sarah stopped speaking in tongues because he wasn't convinced that it was tongues. She's like, I don't know if it is what the Bible is talking about. Uh, nothing to do with me. It was her. Uh, and so here, uh, that's one of the questions. But I think he's thankful for it because he, in this point, whatever he's talking about, he's like, it's a gift from God. Now, who is it that gives the gifts? It's God. And so, you, okay, you, you, you move from there. Now, in some ways, what does it mean that language builds the individual up? It means speaking in tongues and languages builds the individual up. I don't know. <laughs> and that's what we've got. I don't want to add pixels in. I can tell you what it could be. It could be that being able to express these vocalizations is helpful and kind of just crying out. And you know, I, I don't think it's the Romans, um, the Romans passage, was it 12, that talks about um, God interceding for us with groans. I don't think that's talking about tongues at all. That's just saying that the Spirit is interceding for us. He speaks to God when we don't know what to say. I don't think it's necessarily the gift of tongues there. Um, there you go. And number six, can someone else help you speak in tongues better? E.g., slowing it down, getting you to speak it louder and quieter. Um, I don't know. But I know we need to love one another and use the gifts that we've been given to build one another up and not focus on the gift, but on how we're going to love and build each other up. And tongues doesn't do that. So stop it. <laughs> like, unless it's interpreted, it doesn't matter how you say it. Just ask the interpreter. Was that too quick? Ask them. <laughs> Sorry, can you slow it down? So that would be, I uh, say that frivolously, but... I think that'd be how you do it. You'd ask the interpreter if someone can interpret. And is that too quick? Uh, can I restate my definition of prophecy? Oh, that's great. No, because I made some of it up as I went. <laughs> okay. Intelligible speech that builds up, encourages, and consoles others. Prophecy is intelligible speech that builds up, encourages, and consoles others, that they might be convicted of their sin, pointed to the lordship of Jesus, and recognize that God has addressed them. It. Poor kids, I'm allowed. <laughs> Prophecy is intelligible speech. I don't think this is worth writing down, but anyway, it might be. That builds up, encourages, and consoles others. That they might be convicted of their sin. Pointed to the Lordship of Jesus and recognized God has addressed them. So that gets to next week. Might be molded. It's my working definition. Did you say that? Uh, next question. Have we got time? I'm just, Jerry's the, oh, Jerry's saying no more. Oh, yes. Actually, next week is the answer to that one. Is it up there? Yeah. What has been your personal experience of tongues or prophecy? Well, come back next week. I'm going to pray. Lord, thanks for these questions. Thanks for the way we get to grapple with your word. And at times it's hard to understand exactly what's going on and what we think. And 
but help us to be crystal clear about what you are crystal clear about in your word. Help us today to walk away and not spend all our time discussing definitions of gifts, but asking you to mold us in love, asking you to show us how we can use our gifts to build up one another, spending time looking out for the person who's on their own, asking them how their week is going. Lord, we pray this day you would keep growing us up. Pray this in your son's name. Amen. Friends, why don't we stand together and remind one another of how good it is when God speaks by his word and through his spirit.